Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Duvini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us, and I hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and just maybe entertain you a little bit as we go. Uh, You may realize that, of course, we missed having a podcast last week because I was in Israel, and I decided just not to bother with trying to record a podcast while I was over there. <clears throat> and that was a wise choice because I was pretty much constantly moving around, doing things and seeing sights. And let me tell you something, it's an amazing trip. I absolutely hope to, to go again in a couple of years and bring another group from our church. And so if you didn't come on this one, uh, come on the next one. It's, it's definitely a, a transformative experience. You will not read, especially the Gospels, but really all of the Bible in the same way again. There were just so many moments where Uh, you're standing in a place where you know Jesus stood. Uh, When you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, there are olive trees in that garden that are over 2,000 years old, which means that that tree was there when Jesus was in the garden. Uh, And that's pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, I, I, because I'm a nerd, I, I brought my Bible along with me, and I carried it with me pretty much everywhere we went. And I was like, you know, like one of the only people in the world who still uses a physical Bible to read from, apparently. Um, and, and so I, on most days, I got, you know, I, I had the, the opportunity, the privilege to open up my Bible and read stories out of the gospel while standing in the places where they took place. Um, and that's just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, so, you know, the, the full experience, the full majesty of everything we saw, all, all the incredible things we learned, all of that is still sinking in. So don't expect this to be a podcast about the trip to Israel. Because um, we just, we have things that we have to cover. But I'm, I'm just, and I'm saying all this so that you understand that if I, you know, you know, Lord willing, I'll still be the pastor here at Asbury in, you know, two or three years. And I would love to do another trip again because, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you're drinking through a fire hose the whole time. And, and I really feel that I, I, I want to go back in large part just because I'm sure that there are things that, that I didn't pick up on, things that didn't sink in and that I need to go back to experience once more. Uh, and I'm telling you now, if I do it, if, I, if, you know, God willing, I'm still the pastor here in a couple of years and I do another trip and you didn't go on this one, sign up and go. It's well worth it. Uh, it's it's an incredible experience. Plus, you get to hang out with me for 10 days. And who doesn't want that? Um, I'm a delight, let me tell you. Um, we're going to kind of focus in on the Gospel of Mark. And, and I'm going to warn you right now that normally when I do these podcasts, I have like extensive notes typed up that I've worked on, slaved over for a long time. I'm well prepared. I am not well prepared for this podcast. <laughs> um, I'm catching up on everything that I've missed out on the on the last ten days, and I'm trying. I, I'm I'm really working very hard to avoid checking my email. So, um, so I'm kind of winging it here, and we're going to talk about the Gospel of Mark because you're reading the Gospel of Mark, and I tend uh, I tend not to use the Gospel of Mark very much when I teach and when I preach. Um, some of that is just personal preference. I really like 
Matthew's gospel. I really like the gospel of John a lot. Um, and so Mark and Mark and, and Luke both are gospels I tend to spend less time in, but Mark especially so. And, and part of that is also just that Mark is so short. <laughs> it's such a short gospel. And and all of the, the stories in Mark are short and they're terse and they're fast-paced. Uh, and so a lot of people like that, of course, because it makes it a really easy gospel to read. You can get through it quickly. Um, you know, Matthew's gospel, sometimes like one chapter is four pages of the, of the gospel. Um, whereas Mark doesn't typically do that. Um, and, 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 you know, Luke is so detailed and John just gets weird in places. And so some people, a lot of people like Mark because it's just fast paced. It's easy. It's straightforward. I'm less of a fan. Um, it doesn't mean it's not a good gospel. It just means I, I tend, I tend not to use it as much. And that's probably something I should, I should fix because, um, all four Gospels are, are of equal importance. Um, they each give a different perspective and a different point of view on the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Mark is, in all likelihood, the earliest of the four Gospels. It's very likely that this is the first of the four that was written, um, even though the Gospel of Matthew was the one that was far more important to the early church. That's the, that was by far the more widespread, most widely read, most widely used Gospel in the early church. Uh, but Mark is the earliest one, and actually it, it seems fairly clear that Matthew and Luke, when they were writing their Gospels, had a copy of Mark in front of them and, and were using that. Um, if not necessarily as source material, they were certainly using it to kind of check and make sure they were remembering things accurately. Which is why those three Gospels are so similar, whereas you get to the Gospel of John and it's just completely different. Um, so Mark is this really short Gospel, and it has this moment, you're going to get to the end of Mark, and there's a weird thing that happens where um, there's 16 chapters in Mark. But if you look at uh, chapter 16 in your gospel, you're going to see a note. Or you should see a note. If your Bible doesn't have this, it must be a very, very old Bible. Um, after chapter 16, verse 8, there will be a note that says something along the lines of, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Which means the earliest manuscripts end with this verse. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's talking about Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who's one of the other mothers of this, the disciples. These are all women who are not just, uh, you know, two of them are obviously mothers of the disciples, and then there's Mary Magdalene, but they're all women who have uh, supported and cared for Jesus and the disciples in their ministry. They're the ones who are at the tomb and realize that the dead body's not there. So um, what this is saying is that the earliest manuscripts are, they, they end with the women uh, finding the empty tomb, being told by an angel that Jesus has risen, and being instructed to go and tell the disciples and Peter, that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee, 
And then they flee, and they don't tell anything to anyone because they're afraid. And then that's the ending of the gospel. And the remainder of Mark's gospel, the, the 19 through 20, um, has Jesus. The, the part that's not included in the earliest manuscripts is he talks about Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, who then, after this appearance, goes and tells the disciples. And then Jesus appears to uh, two other disciples, and then he appears to them in Galilee and gives them the Great Commission. So what's the... And I say this because it's the only one of the Gospels where there's this ambiguity about the ending. And so some scholars will say, well, these last 11 verses, 19 through 20, are added on later because people were uncomfortable with a Gospel that ended with uh, the women just running away because they're afraid and Jesus doesn't appear to anybody and there's no great commission. Um, and so then people, and so I, I know people who really kind of just don't ever read those last 11 verses. And, and now here's something really interesting though. These, these books would have all been written down originally on scrolls, not books as we think of them, they were scrolls. And on a scroll, you know, these things are made of parchment, which is, uh, or papyrus, but it's all organic material, so it doesn't last forever. And on a scroll, the first parts of the scroll to deteriorate and fall off are the very beginning and the very end. And so there is an argument to be made that the reason why those last 11 verses don't show up on the oldest manuscript is not that they weren't included, but rather that the end of those scrolls had deteriorated and fallen off by the time they were discovered, which would mean that the full content of chapter 16 is still original it's just that the oldest manuscripts have already started to deteriorate and so we, we miss out on that part of the chapter in those scrolls now whether that's true or not i don't know but i think it's really interesting at least to think about um and, and it's just kind of one of those things that's worth pondering as you read through the gospel of of Mark. The Gospel of Mark also has kind of like a weird opening. And so some people have suggested that, that the opening of Mark is so abrupt and and kind of picks up in a weird way because we're missing the original opening for the same reason that we're missing the original ending. I don't know that that's true at all. But it's compelling, and I certainly like to think that um, that the original gospel didn't just end with the women being afraid and running away, because that doesn't really serve much purpose. It would seem kind of odd um, for Mark to just leave out the bit where they go and tell the disciples, and the disciples receive the Great Commission. And yet, the Great Commission in Mark is also really weird. Uh, you'll See what I mean when you read it, if you don't already know. So, my point is, I'm inclined, actually, to believe that argument, that, that the only reason why these last 11 verses are not in the oldest manuscripts is that 
they were written on scrolls and they had deteriorated and that the uh, original ending just on the oldest manuscripts just got rotted away. Um, and so these final 11 verses, I think, are probably original. That's my opinion. I could be wrong. But how often does that happen, really? Uh, so we're about halfway through, Mark. We're... Um, oh my gosh, I've already forgotten what we read this morning. What I read this morning. You can see how the jet lag is affecting me. I'm fairly certain I read Mark chapter 9 this morning. So we're actually a bit over halfway through the Gospel of Mark. One thing you'll notice, by the way, if you haven't already spotted it, is that Mark uses the word immediately a lot. Things happen at a really fast pace. Which makes sense, because Mark is condensing three years of ministry into these 16 really short chapters. I mean, all the Gospels have to do that to some extent, but Mark does it even more. So there's a couple of things I want to point out. In Mark 8, you have this story about Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now, there is also stuff in here. Literally, the in the chapter before he feeds the 4,000, he feeds the 5,000. So why are there these two miracles? Well, you got to notice, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, and and by the way, I've been in the spot where he did that. It's, it's, it's awesome to be in the place where that miracle happened. It's not too far from uh, the city of Capernaum, the, the old city, uh, or the modern city of Tiberias, which is where we were staying. It's not far from those spots at all. Uh, in fact, all those, those spots along the Sea of Galilee are really close together. If you go out on a boat, you can see. You can see Tiberias, you can see Capernaum, you can see Magdala, you can see um, the spot where he fed the 5,000, you can see the mountain on which he gave the Sermon on the Mount, you can see the spot where he uh, appeared to the disciples at the end of John's Gospel to have breakfast with them. You can see all of that in one glance. It's all that close. Uh, it's incredible. So Jesus feeds the 5,000, and that is a crowd of Jewish people because they are in the region of Galilee, which is, of course, it takes its name from the Sea of Galilee, but it but it's also like a region of northern Israel, which is a very green and lush region. That's, of course, where Jesus is from. That's where Nazareth is. Um, so he feeds the 5,000, and those are Jews. And then you have this thing here um, towards the end of chapter 7. Well, starting in verse 24 uh, in chapter 7, he says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Those would be um, in modern-day Lebanon, in an area that in the ancient world would have been called Phoenicia. So he's left the territory of the Jews. He is now in Gentile country. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, because of course they're in a Gentile area now. A Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The metaphor here being that he's come for the Jews, not the Gentiles, which is an odd thing to say when he's in a Gentile country. 
But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, for the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So this is a weird moment. Jesus goes to a Gentile country, stays in somebody's house. We don't know who, we're not told who, we're not told who he's there to visit. We just know he's in Gentile territory. And then a Gentile woman comes up to him and begs him to heal. Now, presumably, since he went voluntarily into Gentile territory, this is why he's there. And he has this weird discussion with her where he says, no, 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 I'm not here for you. I'm here for the Jewish people. And then she has an even weirder answer, right? Yes, I know, Lord, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs the children drop. Now, all of this is, of course, they're speaking in you know, metaphor and imagery that would make perfect sense in the ancient world. And to us, it seems really insulting. Um, but the gist of it is, she, a Gentile woman, she recognizes the status of, of the Jewish people as God's chosen people. And at the same time, she understands that the purpose of the Jewish people is not to be a people set apart for their own purposes, but a people who are set apart so that through them, God can save the rest of the world. And so she recognizes that this man who, to her, would simply be an extremely important, extremely holy Jewish prophet, um, is someone who she should go to for healing, who she can connect to the Jewish God through. In other words, she recognizes the truth, the goodness, the mercy that comes in and through Jesus. And she does it actually in a way that many of the Jewish people won't. I don't think it was ever Jesus' intention to not heal this woman's daughter. I think he simply wanted her to make that statement of, of faith and trust. For her own sake, so that she would recognize that she does have faith in the one true God. So interesting little side note, but but he is now in the territory of the Gentiles, and then he moves on. And so in verse 31, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. This matters. The Decapolis, it's a Greek word, it means the ten cities, and it refers to a region that is to the along the south and east portion of the Sea of Galilee. So immediately to the south of it, and then kind of curving up a little bit to the east, is the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities. These are Gentile cities. One of them you, you can still go and tour the ruins of, if, and we did, by the way. Uh, it's called it's Bet Shean, and it's immediately south of the Sea of Galilee. It's due south of it. And it was a huge city, actually, very important in Jesus' day and age. And that's the only one on the western bank of the Jordan. The other nine are on the east bank of the Jordan. But this is a this is a Gentile region. These cities are all Gentiles. There are not Jews living in the Decapolis. And so Jesus is still in the region of the Decapolis in chapter 8 when this happens. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, 
and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, these are the same disciples who were just with him not that long ago when he fed the 5,000. So, sometimes the disciples just seem a little dense. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set before them they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them he said that these also should be set before them and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full and there were about 4000 people and he sent them away so the significance of this second miracle is that he is in a gentile region all of these 4,000 people he's fed would be Gentiles. Most of Jesus' ministry is concentrated on the Jewish people. And it's not really until the book of Acts when, when Peter and Paul begin actually working with Gentiles that, that the message shifts and, and there begins to be a major focus on Gentile Christians. But Jesus already in his ministry is laying the groundwork. If people would just pay attention. If his apostles and disciples would just pay attention. Here he is feeding 4,000 Gentiles, having compassion on them. That's not something the Pharisees would have done. That's not something any Jewish rabbi would have done, having compassion on the Gentiles. They're not worthy of compassion in, in the ancient Jewish mindset. So he's performing miracles the Gentiles. He's reaching out to the Gentiles. He's feeding the Gentiles. He's going into the Gentile territories, first in Tyre and Sidon, and then now in the Decapolis. He is in Gentile territory proclaiming the gospel, being accepted there while he is rejected in his hometown. That's the significance of this miracle. He went into Gentile territory, surrounded by nothing but non-believers, and they flocked to him to hear his message. Already, before his crucifixion and resurrection, before the day of Pentecost, before Peter has his vision where God declares all things to be clean, and Peter understands that, that, he's, that it's okay to include the Gentiles, before Paul is sent on his mission to the Gentiles, Jesus is laying the groundwork. Jesus is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And right after that, the Pharisees come to argue with him and to seek a sign from heaven to test him. Now, if they'd just been paying attention, they might have realized he's already given them the signs from heaven. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He is preaching to the Gentiles. That's a sign. That's a sign. Because the Jewish people were never meant to follow God just so that they could be the only people who follow God. They were meant to be the people who follow God so that they would be a, a shining light in the darkness so that the Gentiles would see the good news of who God is and believe. 
Jesus is embodying that. And the Pharisees miss it. So that's the significance. Jesus is out healing the Gentiles in the Gentile cities. And then you have in chapter 9, which is what I read today, I should point out, I'm recording this on Monday, by the way, so you'll be hearing this later in the week. Uh, so when I say, you know, I read this today, um, you, if you're following along the reading plan, should be much further along than what I'm talking about right now. Chapter 9, a lot of things happen. You have the transfiguration on the mountain. Um, this is interpreted as a few, few different places. Most likely it's Mount Tabor, which is in the region of Galilee. It's actually not far at all from his hometown of Nazareth and Cana. Um, again, if you're on the hilltop of Nazareth, you can see Mount Tabor. Um, it's really distinctive because it's alone. It's not like part of a range of hills or anything. It looks kind of like the hump on, a, on the back of a camel, but you can, it, and it stands by itself. Um, so they have the transfiguration. The disciples, they don't, they don't know what, what this is about. <laughs> They've got no clue what's going on. Um, they come back down the mountain. You have this really incredible moment um, where... where there's this man whose son has an unclean spirit. He, he wants the disciples to heal him, and they can't. And he says to Jesus, I, you know, I know that they couldn't do it, but I know you can. And actually what he says is, um, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That's, that's in chapter 9, verse 22. Uh, and Jesus said to him, if you can, if you pay attention when you read your books, like, okay, you have the quotes that mark where Jesus is speaking, but then you have the second quote that says he's quoting the man, right? It's like this incredulous thing, like, oh, seriously, if I can? Really? You have doubts now at this point? You're coming to me to ask me to heal your baby, and you're saying, if you can do anything? Come on, man. No, do better. <laughs> There's a little bit of that going on. Then Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, that may sound like nonsense. But I think this is a really, really profound prayer which we all ought to pray regularly. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Bible. I believe that God created us all. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he is my Savior. I believe that he is coming back. I believe in the resurrection and in eternal life with God in the new creation. But the thing is... There's always a measure of unbelief. I, yeah, I believe all that's true, but how, how deeply do I believe it? Is my belief truly unshakable? Is my belief really as serious as I would like it to be? Does my belief in these things actually shape 
how I behave, how I live, how I think about the world? Does my belief in all of these things actually cause me to put ultimate and complete faith in God? No. It doesn't. I wish it did. But I, I absolutely have plenty of times where if I really, really think about it, I do not believe. Or my faith wavers. Where I suspect it's true. I believe it's true, but not totally. There remains a measure of doubt. I believe. Help my unbelief. This father believed. He believed that Jesus could probably heal his son. Which is why he said, if you can help him. If you can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. Now, do you really hear the phrase in there? If you can do anything. If you can do anything. He's heard about this man, Jesus. He's heard this man can do anything. And he says, if that's true, have compassion and help us. Now, how often have you actually prayed a prayer that is similar to that? Lord, if you are who you say you are, help me. Lord, if you really can heal people, heal me. Heal my husband. Heal my wife. Heal my, heal my friend. Lord, if you, if you really can do it. And in that moment, there is that measure of unbelief, isn't there? You may not have doubts that God is capable. You may have doubts that God is willing. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. A good, good prayer for all of us to embrace and to pray from time to time. Even if it's it's going to take different forms for all of us. The, the unbelief we have will always look different from person to person. Because all of us have different issues in life that we're dealing with. We have different uh, areas where we are individually wrestling with our faith. One of the things I struggle with the most is, is my belief that God will provide that he will make sure my needs are met. I struggle with that. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That chapter ends with a, a warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Ooh, not fun, right? Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. Mm. This is something that as a, as a pastor, I... It's one of the, those verses that I read and then I'm really like deeply, deeply troubled for a little while. You know, as we are in the midst of, of talking about moral issues within the church and how they divide us and things like same-sex marriage, one of the things that I, I tell people is, you know, I'm not actually particularly worried about gay people. God is so merciful and he's so much more forgiving than any of us can really understand. And I can, you know, even if I, I, I can certainly understand it, that, you know, a person who's, who's openly gay and, and who is still striving after Jesus and trying to be uh, the best follower of Jesus they can be, and they've got this one sin they can't shake, I wouldn't be surprised if God is merciful and forgiving. I'm a lot more worried about the people who are openly teaching others that it's okay to live a sinful life. It seems to me, all throughout the Bible, the harshest judgments are reserved not for sinners, but for people who teach people it's okay to sin. Now, all that is to say, this is something that just weighs on me a lot. Because I, I don't want to be one of the ones who causes someone else to sin. And we tend, when we read that, I think, to restrict it to people in leadership. But it's not. You, my dear listeners, could certainly become one who causes someone else to sin. Either by setting a poor example, or by teaching something which is false. Or by doing something, saying something, treating someone in some way that drives them away from the church. These are things that are important to bear in mind. The gospel is not all sunshine and rainbows. It's not all beautiful healing moments. There are, there are dire warnings in all four gospels that we really have to pay attention to. There's this balance between the, the grace and the mercy of God, but also the righteousness and the justice of God. Now, having said that, I don't know where I was going to go with it in the end. I told you, I'm we in this. Um... And sometimes that means I don't have the complete thought. These are just my random musings on the Gospel of Mark this morning. I hope you've enjoyed them. Um, we're still reading through Mark. We'll finish it up next week, I believe, on 
believe on Monday, actually, is the last. Hold on, I have my notes right here about when this plan ends. Um, yeah, we will, we will, you'll read the last chapter of Mark on February 13th, and then we'll begin the Gospel of Luke on February 14th. And Luke is radically different from Mark because Luke is super detail oriented, um, which can, you know, be good and bad. Then we'll read, we'll spend the rest of February and the first couple of weeks of March reading Luke. And then we'll begin John's Gospel on March the 10th. And we'll actually finish out the Gospel of John on March the 30th. And then we have we have nine days to read through Mark's Gospel again. And the reason we're going to read through Mark's Gospel again is because it's good to read through the whole Gospel story again leading up to the day we celebrate the Resurrection. And Mark's gospel is the one that you can actually read in that period of time because it's nice and short. Um, and so you can expect during Holy Week a whole lot of teaching on, on Mark's gospel and what Mark is trying to say. So I'm going to actually end it here. No more teaching on Mark until Holy Week. All right, my friends. We will be back with another podcast next week beginning into the gospel of Luke. Until then, God bless.